We continue on a journey just to celebrate God's church. And how do we continue to be the church of Jesus even in troubled times? And as we look to that, we're going to be looking the next two weeks at uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, uh, the 12th chapter. And the 12th chapter, uh, Paul, first of all, in the, in the early part of Romans, right, he reminds us we are all broken and disobedient people. We all stand in need of God's saving grace. No one is left out. And because we all need that saving grace, Jesus gave his all for you and me. He gave his all and gave his life on Calvary so that we might experience the mercy and saving grace of God. And so in light of everything Jesus has done for you and for me, he talks about how we are to respond both individually and both as a community together. And so I hope you'll follow along with me. If you have your Bibles or your Bible on your phone, I invite you to explore with me the 12th chapter of Romans. This is what Paul writes. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper aspect of worship. So do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. For by grace, given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, well then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do so diligently. It, if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, um, as we come before you today, we just invite your Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts and lives, in our community and world. Lord Jesus, um, we thank you that you have given everything for us, everything. And so, Lord, to help us to offer back to you what we can for your glory and for the strengthening of your body, the church of Jesus Christ. 
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned before, uh, Paul uses chapter 12 to kind of wrap up everything that came before. Right? He starts with that key word, therefore. And I've heard this from preachers all down the line. Whenever you see a therefore, your job is to see what it is therefore. That therefore wraps together everything that came before and at the heart of that comes from verse 32 of chapter 11. For God has bound everyone under disobedience. And what he's talking about, he's bound both Jewish people in disobedience and the nations and the pagans and the Gentiles in disobedience so that God may have mercy on them all. And so as Paul begins the the message for us today, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of this mercy, that while we were disobedient, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In view of that mercy, how do we respond? He says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your proper act of service and worship. And so today, I want to focus kind of on on two themes, two key areas. The first theme hits in these early classic verses of Romans chapter 12. And the key here that Jesus is offering you and me today is this. You are a person with purpose. So many people are wandering through life, not knowing where they're headed, not know why they're here, not knowing if their life counts or makes any sort of difference at all. And they get lost. But Paul reminds us, we aren't to be lost. You were made for a purpose. And that purpose is to offer back to Jesus all that you are, all that you have been, all that you might be, so that one day, maybe today, maybe tomorrow or next week, God might begin to do a new work in you that'll bring God glory and accomplish God's pleasing, perfect, and goodwill. So that's the first uh, word for us today is I hope you'll find today in this message that you have an infinite purpose. You are valuable to God. You are valuable to Jesus Christ. And it takes all of us to be willing to surrender to Christ to, to find out God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. In doing this, Paul reminds us that this takes renewing of our mind because we don't want the world to be the one who primarily shapes us. The world will always mold us in a way that's destructive and harmful and hurtful. So instead, in surrender to Jesus, we have the opportunity to have a new mind, a new understanding and new thoughts that will bring us life abundant and full. As John writes, of Jesus' words in the Gospel of John. And so you were made for a purpose. You were made for a purpose. You know, sometimes, though, it's hard for us to believe 
that we have much of a purpose. I've kind of found that as a soccer coach along the way. I've, I've coached an awful lot of soccer. I don't get to coach it anywhere near as much as I used to. I still coach Chandler's team once every spring the last couple of years, but, but that's about it. But as a soccer coach, you get to work with kids, and oftentimes as a coach of younger kids and even sometimes older kids, you get boys and girls who have never played any team sport in their life. And so they feel like a fish out of water, right? And the hardest thing for them to do is just to get on the field. And so with those kinds of kids, I just, I try to get them out on the field. I keep their job simple. I try to put them in a place where all you got to do is you just try to shoot the ball or you just try to you know, do the best you can to help your teammates make a pass here or there. But oftentimes, some of these students, you know, after about five or 10 minutes in their very first game, they're ready to come off the field and sit on the sideline and say, I don't want to go back in. I don't know what I'm doing. And so as a coach, you got to encourage them. You have a purpose for this team. You just haven't found it yet. You got to get out there. You got to get in the game and just go have fun and see how you can help your team. Maybe it'll be by scoring a goal. Maybe it'll be by making an important pass. But just go try. And in our faith, we find that same thing. We come up with excuses of why not me? Why not us? So, I, you, know, uh, you know, my life is too much of a mess or, you know... I never grew up in church or, or whatever it is, or I'm too quiet, I'm too shy. And one of the lessons Paul wants for us today is our, Jesus died for you and me. Jesus gave everything. And in return, he asks for everything from us. And if we're willing to take that risk, that step of surrender, there is no telling what God will do in and through your life. There's no telling how you will begin to see God begin to work some amazing things. You'll begin to see God's good and pleasing and perfect will start to happen in your life as you walk with him and try step by step to learn what it means to be a part of the team. So that's the first place. And so Paul is thinking about the team this morning. He's writing to Rome, the church in Rome. Rome is the center of the ancient world. There is no more important city or place or location on the planet at the time Paul is writing than Rome. And he knows he's writing to people he doesn't really know. And he is concerned about how their church is doing, how the community of faith is doing. And one of the areas that he's concerned about is their attitude and how, how they're orienting their life in important moments. And so he gives them a bit of a challenge at this point in the third verse. For by the grace given to me, I say to each one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has given to each of you. As we look at this next piece, um, 
I want to share with you an idea. First, first, let me kind of give you a little more context. Any of you guys see the Hunger Games? Know what the Hunger Games is, right? In the Hunger Games, there are all these towns in post-apocalyptic America, right? And each of these little communities, they have a function for the body. They do one thing really well. One may be science, another may be manufacturing, another may be you know, gathering resources. But the, the head of all these communities is the capital, right? And if you live in the capital, you have a completely different mindset. You think you're the best. All these other communities are around to serve you so that you can be the best, better than everybody else. No one can compare with the people of the capital. And brothers and sisters, I think as Paul writes the letter to the Roman people, I think the same thing is going through his mind. Rome was the most important city on the planet. And so if you were a part of the community of Rome, especially if you were prosperous and doing well in the city of Rome, it was very likely you would be struggling with the big head, right? We're better than everybody else. We're better than the colonies in Greece and Turkey, and we're better than the Jewish people. We're better than everybody else. Paul notices this. And so I think one of the things he calls them to in this moment as a community, I want you to be a healthy community. And if you're going to be a healthy community, you have to remember you're not number one. You're not. If you think of yourself with a high attitude, then you're going to miss out on the truth. So many of us, when we think of ourselves individually, right, we can get stuck into our own thinking like, I know everything. I've got it figured out. If you want to know the way to go, ask me. If you want to know the right thing to do, ask me. If you want to live life right, just do it like I do, right? I, I have the same tendency, I think. And what Paul is saying here is no. Instead, let your attitude be a sober attitude, a grounded attitude that realizes if we are going to be the best we can be, we don't do it by ourselves. Let me say that again. If we're going to be the best we can be, we can't do it by ourselves. We have to do it together. We have to be willing to listen to each other. We have to be willing to learn from each other. It's only in these moments that God can bring out the best for us. And so Paul says, hey, uh, you know, bring yourself down a couple of notches. Have sober judgment. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Instead, be grounded. And I think this is just a, a, a good reminder for me and for you that at the core, humility Humility is the foundation of being a growing human being. Humility is the foundation of becoming a growing human being. One of the things I have loved about the Methodist, United Methodist in particular denomination over the years is we, we're, we've been a broad community, right? 
we are a denomination that has uh, white folks and black folks, Hispanic folks, Asian folks. We've got a large part of the body in Africa and the Philippines and Eastern Europe and Western Europe. We're a global church. We have uh, rich and poor. We have, um, we have conservative and progressive. And when you get all the voices around the table, if we, if we sit down together with sober judgment, we learn and grow and we're better together. And one of the things that breaks my heart with where we are currently as we head kind of in different directions is it doesn't matter which denomination we connect with or we head with, both the United Methodist denomination in the future and the more traditional denomination in the future, both of these are going to not have as much of that breadth of different kinds of folks following Jesus. It's almost like, you know, each denomination will cut off an arm and say, okay, we'll be better if we don't have an arm anymore. You know, and, and one you know, denomination will cut off the right arm and say, that's the one we need to cut off. And the other denomination is going to cut off the left arm and say, no, that's the arm we don't need. But, but either way, we're losing something. And so uh, Paul reminds us that we are meant to keep our ears open, that we're healthier, better together. And as he moves forward in this, he reminds us who we are and whose we are. Verse 4, for each of us has one body with many members. That is, we've got eyes, we've got ears, we've got a nose, we've got fingers, we've got toes. We have many members, and these members, we, these don't all have the same function. The nose does something different than the ears. The fingers do something different than the eyes. And so in Jesus, the Messiah, though many of us form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And so Paul reminds us in this moment that in the same way, the church of Jesus is meant to be filled with different people, with different kinds of personalities of people and rich people and poor people. And then that's one of the things he would expect, say, for instance, in the church in Rome. In the church in Rome, we know there was a Jewish community in Rome. And so in the Roman church, there's going to be Jewish folks. And in the Roman church, there's going to be Roman folks, of course. But because, I don't know, I, th I think Rome probably would have been, in a lot of ways, similar to the way we look at downtown Atlanta, right? Or the way we look at New York, right? When you go to New York, there's all different kinds of folks there, right? And so in Rome, I would not be surprised if one day, in one day, you could probably see some North African folks walking down the street who are there in Rome. Or you could see some Egyptian folks walking down the street there in Rome, or Jewish folks, or Greek folks, or Turkish folks. You found people from all over the empire who said, we want to be in the prosperity of the Roman capital. And so in this church, what Paul is saying, he says, listen, it's okay that you're one body with many members. It's okay that you have in your church probably folks 
from the Jewish community and the Gentile community, from the Roman community and the Greek community and the Turkish community. You probably all got all kinds of folks in your churches. And one of the things is, is as kingdom people, we want to celebrate those kind of things. One of the greatest evidences for the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are a church and a people for all people, all nations, everywhere. You know, we want to not just be a white church. We want to be a church that shows white and black and Asian and Hispanic, and we can all gather together and worship together and find ways to appreciate one another's cultures. And I think that's part of what Paul was challenging them in the day in the Roman era. You're a one body, but you've got all kinds of members. He says that's a good thing. And so he reminds us of two things. He reminds us, one, we all belong to Jesus Christ. We all belong to Jesus Christ. We are all connected to him. And it's Jesus that takes us in our differences and brings us together. And it's Jesus who unites us together as the body of Christ. And then the second thing he reminds us is not only do we all belong to Jesus together, but we belong to each other. We belong to each other. We're all part of the body. And when we start hacking at the body, we lose something. If you are here this morning, I believe the Lord Jesus has brought you here. You have a place among us because you are called to be a part of what God is doing in our community as well. And so I want to try to help uh, give a little bit of insight from this, uh, from a couple of historical voices. The first is St. Augustine. St. Augustine reminds us through communion. Last Sunday we had communion. He reminds us through communion that the whole picture of the bread at the table is to be a picture for us that reminds us that we're connected. He says this, for the apostle says the bread is one and we though many, we're one body. So thus he explained the sacrament of the Lord's table. The bread is one though, and we though many are one body. So by bread, you are taught and instructed as to how you ought to cherish unity. Was that bread made of one grain of wheat? Were there not rather many grains? However, before they became bread, these grains were separate. They were joined together in water after a certain amount of crushing, for unless a grain is ground and moistened with water, it cannot arrive at that form which is called bread. So too, you who were previously ground, then came the baptism of water. You were moistened, as it were, so as to arrive at the form of bread. But without fire, bread does not yet exist. What then does the fire signify? Well, the fire, that's the Holy Spirit. It comes after the water. Then you become bread, and that is the body of Christ. Hence, in a certain manner, unity is signified. 
He closes with this and says, Receive then so that you may ponder, so that you may possess unity in your heart, so that you may always lift up your heart. St. Augustine lived in 400 AD. I could read for you probably two or three others of the ancient church fathers primarily from 200 AD to 400 AD who when they talked about church talked about this similar topic. The church is made to be baked in the body of Christ and as the body of Christ we are meant to be united together. And we are stronger, again, we're stronger together than we're apart. And then there's a second part that I want us to notice about this topic. And, and so I want to also share with you from C.S. Lewis, uh, the, the great Christian thinker of the 20th century. C.S. Lewis talks about uh, the body of Christ this way. He says, Christianity thinks of human individuals not as members of a group or items on a list, but as organs in a body, different from one another, and each contributing what no other person could. When you find yourself wanting to turn your children or pupils or even your neighbors into people exactly like yourself, remember that God probably never meant them to be exactly like you. You and they are different organs intended to do different things. On the other hand, when you're tempted not to bother about someone else's troubles because they are no business of yours, remember that though he or she is different from you, they are a part of the same organism as you. If you forget that that person belongs to the same organism as yourself, you will become an individualist. If you forget that he is different, a different organ from you, and if you want to suppress differences and make people all the same, all alike, you will become a totalitarian. But a Christian must not be either a totalitarian or an individualist. I feel a strong desire to tell you, and I expect you to feel a strong desire to tell me which of these two errors is worse. But that's the devil getting at us. He always sends offers into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And today we might say pairs of extremes. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking about which is worse. You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. But do not let us be fooled. We have to keep our eyes on the goal and go straight through between both errors. We have no other concern than that with either of them. All right, does that make sense? Let me explain it one more time, right? What he says is some of us think being an individual is the right way to go. It's all about me. And if you, uh, if you want to be like me, then fine. Otherwise, I don't need anybody else. I've got it all figured out. I'll just do it on my own. Thank you very much. 
And there's a lot of folks out there today who aren't coming to church anymore. And I think part of it is because they think they can do life on their own. C.S. Lewis says, that's a way, that, that way doesn't work. And then he says on the other side, but our other tendency is a totalitarianism. <laughs> right? And so this, when we're in this position, what we say is this. If you want to be a part of the group, you need to be exactly like me. You need to think like I think. You need to do like I do. You need to act like I act. And if you can fit in my box, well, then you're okay. And so what uh, C.S. Lewis reminds us of is, is we tend to play off these extremes. We either pick the one box or we pick the other box. And he says, listen, both are equally bad. Our job as Christians, as a part of the body of Christ, is to realize that we're not meant to be by ourselves. We're meant to be together. And we're not meant to all be the same. Instead, we're meant to be a body of diverse kind of people and ideas but we're united in our faith in Jesus and his teaching and in his word. And so, uh, so C.S. Lewis is trying to help us find the middle way. And that's what I find in Christian faith oftentimes, is Christian faith is all about finding the middle way between two extremes, right? One side may say, well, it's all about love. We just ought to love people and accept them as they are. The other side says, no, no, boundaries are important. We need strong church boundaries, and that's important. And the truth is, we need both. We got to walk in love and boundaries. That's the gospel. We got to walk in mercy and grace and truth. And so in these ways, Paul is trying to guide us to understand that though we have different gifts, um, though we are different in many ways, we still all belong to Jesus together, and we all belong to each other. Um, I want to share with you one more quote, and then we'll, we'll begin to wrap up. This is the quote. This one comes from our founder, founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley. John Wesley says this. He says, listen, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. May we not be of one heart, though we're not of one opinion. Without all doubt, we may. Herein, all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these smaller differences. John Wesley in many areas of his life, tried to encourage us that even in moments where we didn't think alike, to do our best to love alike. And that's who I think Paul is trying to help the Roman church be and who Paul wants our church to be. He wants us to know that we are brought together. We all belong to Jesus. He wants us also to realize we belong to each other. And so his challenge for us, like for the church in Rome, is stay in the game and get in the game. Stay in the game and get in the game. He goes on and says, if your gift, find your gift, right? First, each of us has a gift. 
Use it for God's glory. You say, I don't know what my gift is. Find a place to try something. You know, get on the field. See what you might be good at. As you do, he says, listen, you may find it's prophecy. And prophecy is a great gift. It helps us hear what God wants us to hear. So if it's prophecy, then prophesy according to your faith. Maybe it's behind the scenes serving. And if you're behind the scenes serving, then, then serve, help, find ways to make a difference. I remember Martin Luther King Jr. did a whole sermon on this and said, you can have a PhD to serve or you can have no degree and serve. The great gift of service is we can all get out and do it. Instead of prophecy and service, it might be teaching. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, he says, then encourage. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's leading, then lead diligently. And if it's showing mercy, then show mercy cheerfully. And so Paul challenges us to get in the game and stay in the game, to be on God's team together, to realize that we're much stronger together than we are apart. Um, God has brought you guys together for many, many years. And I pray we will find a way through this hard season, whichever choice is made, as many as possible to still say, this family is the family of Jesus that I belong to. I belong to them. They belong to me. And so for us to stay in the game together. And the way we will navigate through, again, goes back to the first part of the chapter. Paul reminds us one last time, when we surrender our will, that's when we can find God's pleasing, good, and perfect will. When we lower ourselves, that's where we can let him do his work. And it's only in surrender that we find that God's good, pleasing, and perfect will begins to fall into our laps, into our place. And so my prayer, final prayer for us today is that we might be willing to surrender all together and just trust Jesus and see what he might do next. Um, you know, there's one thing else I know as a soccer coach, and that's this. The one way to guarantee a losing team is to be trying to play the game with only half the team. Whether it's baseball or basketball or football, it's hard to win with only half the team. And my hope and prayer is that we will pray about hard how we can stay a team together because we belong to Jesus and we belong to each other. And I hope the Lord will guide us in the days ahead. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray.